0: Well, the despair is the fear that um, I'm not going to have what I need, or everybody just thinks I'm a racist.
1: David Dark is the author of four books. His most recent is called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. He's a professor at Belmont in Nashville, and he's a cultural critic I heard him speaking at the Festival of Faith and Writing in 2016 in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and am now finally following up on my promise back then to get him on what was just an idea for some upcoming podcast at that point. David is a man who you might say writes prose but speaks in poetry. And on the spectrum of guests for this show, he's definitely more of an advocate and an activist than he is a centrist, and sometimes he and I differ in our perceptions or propose solutions to problems. But he brings a keen mind and a compassionate heart to the world, which is why I've always wanted to have him on as a guest. One final note here is that I had a cold during this interview, so please forgive my congestion. I think it still came out okay. Here we go, here's David. David, you said in a recent interview that the demonizing of the political other, sadly, seems to be working pretty well these days. Yeah. Uh, so my question to you is, did polarization get Trump elected? Or should we look elsewhere for the proof that political demonizing is working well?
0: Yes. Okay. Um, well, I will on did polarization get Trump elected. I will say yes to that. Mm -hmm. And I will unpack and um, one thing that I do with the word demonization is um, I say one of my little sayings that I would love I would love for it to become a popular saying is we demonize when we don't know what to do with our despair. Yeah. And um, I think that happens on every level. It happens when we project all of our fear on um, Barack Obama, or Hillary Clinton, or Donald Trump, or George W. Bush, we don't know what to do with our despair. Even my wife, Sarah Mason, is works in a public school library, and she talks about kids she loves sometimes successfully burning her or insulting her in some way and she says of she once said of the burn the burn itself is a cry for relationship and i think that's true i guess if i'll keep on going with this word demonize um the word satan is hebrew for accuse so we are never more satanic than when we are accusing someone but we also have from Jesus of Nazareth the idea that Satan can't drive out Satan, meaning accusation, or I read it as accusation, can't drive out accusation. So when we had all of these career politicians, beloved figures of the Republican Party, trying to out-accuse Donald Trump, trying to meet his mode of projecting fear and anger on others, they were all soundly defeated by him. So there's a sense in which I believe Donald Trump, who I like to refer to as public servant, 45, he rode into the White House on a wave of accusation. And even now, if he backs down from the accusing of other people, as irredeemably evil elitist whatever it might be he loses the power that put him in that place so accusation polarization we could say is a game that no one wins um but it is the energy whereby he secured his victory if i may i will note too that during the democratic convention when um Supporters of Bernie Sanders were drowned out by the chanting of the words USA, USA. It was again, it was the same game and it was the same sadness and it was the same social disaster happening in which um, people are shouting one another down and that good word is not permitted.
1: So if we're going to say that polarization of the worst type is demonization, and if we're going to say that demonizing is sort of misdirected despair, then one thing we're going to need to be committed to is that we can't just talk about the right, and I don't think you're doing that, we got to talk about the right and the left, because the polarization has been unanimous. It hasn't been like, it hasn't been the case that oh, the right has been really polarized, but the left hasn't. That's not true. Polarization is on every side. So what is the despair, can you name it, on each side?
0: Mm. Well, the despair is the fear that um, I'm not going to have what I need, or everybody just thinks I'm a racist, or everybody just thinks I am trash, I mean, it's that language of winners and losers. And I will note that um, Donald Trump's father, his formula was um, killers and losers, was the way he divided up the world. So we could say that there is at least a tiny bit of evolution in his son's um, switching up of that formula, saying that it's winners and losers. I guess what we need is some space in which people can feel respected. We need to somehow, and and I think of the civil rights era, I think of the beloved community, we need spaces in which people who feel um, stupid or degraded or disrespected in one another's presence can sit down together and hear one another out and not cut each other off and not explain away the other person's Despair, which very often is a complete solid grievance, shame, fright space, you know? Yeah. And um, we, we have to, one person at a time, we have to create those spaces.
1: It still sounds to me like we're mostly naming the despair in the Rust Belt, the despair on the right, the mm-hmm. despair of the Trump supporter. What is the despair on the left? that leads to the polarization uh, or the demonizing of the Trump voter, the demonizing of the white working class male?
0: Well, I think I will. I I refuse, as you do, it seems, a lot of the labels, a lot of this reducing of people as being either left or right. I think sure. Leonard, Cohen. <laughs> Leonard Cohen said, I'm going to get the lyric wrong, but Leonard Cohen said something like, I'm neither left nor right. I'm just hanging around tonight getting lost in that hopeless little screen. The rust belt, the people.
1: No, I well, I'm asking what is the despair that is in the hearts of those on the left that leads them to demonize the Trump voters.
0: Well, I mean, if you are a um a child, I, I don't want to think of this as a left or right. Issue, But it immediately is if you're a child watching your father get deported or I think of a Muslim, one of my um, son's friends um, after the election, a kid named Muhammad said, you're going to need to call me Mo from now on because it isn't safe. I'm not safe. And to say that that child's despair and I know you're not saying this, but to say that that's a political, to try and level that story, to say, oh, you just told me, again, <laughs> you're not saying this, but I'm imagining people, I say, you know, it's a shame that this kid named Muhammad, in order to avoid bodily harm, feels that he needs to start referring to himself as Mo. I, I can imagine many saying in response to that. Why do you have to get all politically correct? And it's like, well, okay, what, what does that even mean? This is a bodily, we can't explain away someone else's bodily fear with a word like politically correct. And so that phrase, politically correct, it seems to me, when people say politically correct, they mean that you have called them out of their comfort zone in terms of recognizing the full humanity of another person, whether it's a gay person, a minority, someone who has been decreed illegal, all that kind of, so definitely that despair, because if when a um, congressman from Iowa refers to non-white babies as other people's children, other people's babies, someone else's babies, as the phrase goes, when that isn't condemned by the president of the United States, um that creates despair for people who are not invited into that party it's so those who have very solid reasons to fear the reign of white supremacy white supremacist terrorism the despair of the last few months is for real cuz racism plays to win every time
1: yeah i think we could also point to a correlated worry And despair, despair seems like it might not be the right word for like coastal liberals like myself or whatever in the year before the general election during Trump's primary moves and during the general election season. Maybe a better word for that would be like a deep anxiety about what will happen to women, what will happen to people of color. What will happen to our national discourse if it is degraded like this? Um, What will happen to the press and freedom of speech? Uh, Stuff like that. So maybe we could still kind of paint a similar thing out of that deep anxiety, which is legitimate, just as the despair of the white working class Rust Belt voter is also legitimate.
0: Those who are lyricized, whose experience has been lyricized by Bruce Springsteen, we could say.
1: Yeah, the the Springsteen crowd. Uh, That's all legitimate despair, legitimate anxiety. But the way that that comes out in an unhealthy society is in this kind of polarization, this intense polarization and demonization Mm -hmm. of the other. Yeah. So I think in general, I'm in agreement with you about your critique of political correctness as a uh, sort of defense mechanism on the right, <clears throat> sort of like a, a barb to be lobbed. A way you know? of
0: waving away the fact of other people.
1: Yeah, or, or people of other types that are different yeah. than our, you know, than our own or whatever. But I also think there is a legitimate conversation to be had around political correctness. And I think that there is a difference, for instance, between saying – these people would like to be called Muslim Americans or these people would like to be called African Americans, not blacks, uh, between that. And, you know, this person would like to be called Zur. This person would like to be called worm self or fairy self, right? (laughs) You know, this person would like to abolish all gendered pronouns in the English language. Um, there's obviously a difference between those things and, the, the term political correctness might get thrown around at you know both of those right mm. yeah for someone on the left who wants to be sensitive to the existence of other types of people and and wants them to be safe and to feel safe but who also recognizes the maybe we can maybe we can just call it the sort of latent absurdity of some claims on the far left, on the bleeding edge of the far left. How does someone in that position think about this stuff? How do they communicate it to their conservative friends?
0: Yeah, I, I do think that the rules of neighborliness remain um, available, <laughs> available as ever. Um, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, remains a kind of guiding mystic practitioner for me on this. And there's this this amazing video in which he's making an argument for the funding of public television. And he says that his job, his work, which involves puppets and songs, is to communicate. And he believes it's a mental health issue. He says, I'm doing, I believe that if we can keep this show going, we will be doing a great public service to the mental health of the people of our nation. If we can persuade young people that their feelings are mentionable and manageable. And it's just this great little proverb your feelings are mentionable and manageable. And that is, you know, when we think of popular music, when we think of, um, Netflix series, um, what I'm looking for in popular music, even in my fascination with particular fan bases and such is, um, the way that music and film and story can communicate to folks, give them a kind of refuge in which they feel less crazy and less isolated and less, um, separated from human beings. So I guess one way I want to do it – This again, this started with this idea of political correctness – is whose experience am I trying to explain away um, when I level a word like that at someone else's testimony, someone else's um, description of their own lives? Uh, what what was the thing worm self was that the possible
1: <laughs> worm self fairy self yeah this is this is stuff that's going on in Canada right now
0: so say you're upset over um, and this feels dated whenever I use this example but say you're troubled by goth or by Slipknot or by um, role playing game folks and or you discover that your child is involved in some kind of game or video or band or something that seems like a pit of despair, the answer isn't to uh, tell them that they are wrong to like those things. The response to that is, why does this feel like home to you? I know that there's very solid reasons for that. And in the same way, we can ask folks, why does, um, oh goodness, we can go straight to Dylan Roof if we like who in the um, shooting in um, South Carolina, he Googled Black Lives Matter and he Googled White Lives Matter, perhaps, and eventually he got this sense from his absorption of fake news that he needed to go out there, go into a church and start shooting people. And in in the trial, when they're trying to pin it on other folks, he says, well, it was the internet and me. And that was such a, the internet in me, internet content in me. Yeah, that very lonely place. I'm, I'm digging myself into a hole in terms of private selves, alone and frightened. But then I imagine the Fred Rogers of the world and the public school teachers of the world and the safe adults of the world who can tell people, you know, your feelings are your feelings but there are ways to find avenues of being social that are aren't destructive you're you're invited to the community of thoughtfulness called literature and um song and poetry and other people. This is very much a rambling response to the well, question no, but-
1: it kind of it gets at something that i I'm picking up on as we speak, which is that you seem to be the kind of person who is affected very deeply and very personally by what is going on around you, what's what's going on in your community and your nation. And I think that when most of us think of the types of thinkers or leaders or writers or whatever, who put that posture forward, this sort of Mr. Rogers-esque kind of open armed, this is a safe place, your story is welcome here. I tend to think of that as almost exclusively a posture of someone on the left toward whomever he or she considers to be a marginalized person or a marginalized group of people.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And when I, I follow you on Twitter and a lot of times I, that's kind of what you're doing is you're sort of like making it known to people who, Did not feel on January 20th that their country became more hospitable toward them, but less that they have a seat at the table. Their concerns are real. You're listening. My question and kind of my challenge is how might that really had that same skill been put to use amongst the white working class voters The uh, blue collar voters without a college degree of all races in America that both parties have basically left behind for the last 30 years. Might we be in a different situation? And then if that's true, if there is this pain, I don't mean to say that, like, black people are getting all the compassion or, or anything. Of course, there's nothing there's sort of no limit on compassion and hearing people out. But it does feel like, you know, even globally, you know, what's going on in France and in Denmark and with Brexit and in Poland, there is a group of people who built basically Western civilization, built the Western capitalist system who have been systematically left behind by globalization, which is not to say that globalization is bad on the whole. In fact, I'm a proponent of globalization. But how can we do we miss some mark when we only level that compassion and that open stance toward the, like, visually marginalized or the categorically marginalized? That's a long question, but you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I think of my, my inner James Baldwin, if I could claim what, wants to say that American civilization was built by slaves. The South, especially. I am on. I'm. I speak to you from Belmont University, which came from. <laughs> I've got to be careful, but it is on a kind of plantation. We call it, yeah, a sort of plantation, and throughout the South.
1: I mean, today in, you're in, you know, in Franklin, Tennessee, right?
0: I'm no. I'm in Nashville. Oh, Tennessee. in Nashville, okay. There's plantations. There's plantation museums everywhere. Um, we call them plantations, but that is a um, something of a wicked euphemism, because we could call them slave labor camps, right? Just as easily. But of course, to even take away from the white southern family, the romanticizing of plantations, cracker barrel, we can call it the cracker barrel mentality, is To make somebody feel shut down is to make them feel like all that they have in terms of a past is a racist past, a redneck past, a past of terror that they have to repent of in some way before they can move forward. Um, Claudia Rankine, the poet, black poet, who gave us the book Citizen, said in an interview with the Paris Review recently... You can't change anybody's mind by shutting them down. And I think that's really, really true. So when we start talking James Baldwin, when I start sharing James Baldwin with my predominantly white students, I have to figure out a way. And I think we have it in the civil rights movement of helping folks with a kind of guilty conscience past that they're trying to somehow contain or control that they, too, are invited To this table, I'm a risky move now. Congressman John Lewis made headlines for a while by saying that he did not believe that Donald Trump is a legitimate president. But before he said that, when he was asked, What do you think about Donald Trump? he said, I believe in forgiveness which is a beautiful, beautiful way to start that response.
1: Yeah, it's too bad he kept going.
0: (laughs) Well, but from there, he also said, he said, I believe in forgiveness, and I can't pretend to sit well with something that I'm not comfortable with. And of course, this is a man who in the 60s risked death on the bridge in Selma and was beaten almost to death, more than once for his insistence that people like him are entitled to vote. So when he says, I believe in forgiveness, this is a guy who has received apologies from the highway patrolmen, the police officers throughout the southern states, who have said, I'm sorry that I beat you That I ordered that you be attacked by a dog. That I shot you with a high-powered hose. So, of course, at any time, the President of the United States can apologize for um, his boasts of sexual harassment. He can apologize for what he has said about Mexicans. He can apologize for calling for the execution of innocent black men in the Central Park thing. He can do it. I pray that he will do it. I don't think that he can know wholeness until he repents of these things. So there's John Lewis and others offering a place at the table, but you can't sit down at that table while refusing to acknowledge your own lived wickedness. (laughs) Maybe I could go, your own responsibility for your own speech. And so when somebody gets shot, killed, gunned down like an animal, under, with the, (laughs) go back to your country. When people are being killed in the United States over this culture of xenophobia, anti-immigrant, anti people of color, and the President will not mourn those deaths, but will do just a general um, we oppose all violence against americans it It isn't specific enough and it isn't encouraging and it's um yeah, it's hard to um, be in relationship with people who will not take responsibility for their own words
1: yeah, I wonder if we could delineate a bit between. What politicians either have to do or tend to do, which is sort of placate their base and give some sort of olive branch between that and between the speech style of a man who maybe has never asked for forgiveness in his life. And we know men like that. We have friends with fathers like that or we have fathers like that who never admit that they're wrong. I think that... uh, yeah, that's a hard one, man. I mean, I'm
0: Well, we're it was Rush Limbaugh who taught me that I own the White House and that I own the Houses of Congress and the Supreme Court. I mean, so to throw it back, Rush Limbaugh when I was a teenager, I listened to him. Bush senior was president at that point in time, and he gave me a very deep sense of the idea that as a taxpayer, I own Public execution. I own the drones. I am responsible for what is done with my tax dollars. So when a fella, when a celebrity apprentice is seeking the highest office in the land and he is saying whatever he has to say to keep his base with him, things change when he becomes the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Right when he becomes the president of the United States. So now I'm paying for Kellyanne Conway. I'm paying for what Sean Spicer is saying. And I am paying for the trips to Florida and the salary and everything. We don't exist in a monarchy. He is my employee. And when my employee will not take responsibility for his own rhetoric, that's my problem. It's different when he's on when he's just a celebrity, but it's a um, yeah, I can lose sleep over it. But but of course, Bill Clinton was my employee, um, Barack Obama was my same deal. It is as if the crazy clown tyrant of Fury Road is standing at the control panel of the alleged free world, and it, it's it's an upsetting thing.
1: So. You're going to have a hard time probably reaching anybody who voted for him with language like that, (laughs) poetic and entertaining and possibly accurate as it is.
0: Well, give me my Rush Limbaugh back for a moment okay? and let me just note that if I voted for him, I didn't, but he is still my employee. So if I could invite those who did to note that they own – like I'm trying to own, the behavior of, of their man. I believe it's the case, here's a little proverb, and I, I hope I can hold on to everybody on this one, but I believe it's the case that adults are responsible for the lies they allow to be spoken in their presence unchallenged. I'll say it again, adults are responsible for the lies they allow to be spoken in their presence, unchallenged. So when I call my senators and my representatives, I'm saying, I hold you responsible. And I've done this with, and I guess I'll throw in too, I have voted Republican and Democrat and Independent and Green. I guess I'll take whatever compliment will be (laughs) leveled at me, but I, I really don't. I don't believe um, that I'm anything other than a conservative, because I am interested in conserving the possibilities of human thriving for as many people nearby and far as I can. So I won't give up that word, conservative, to anyone. I think I'm liberal, too, insofar as I'm committed to the cause of freedom, free thinking, I'm a professor in liberal arts, liberating artfulness. So it isn't just I'm being tricky when I resist those labels. I really don't think that they apply to me. And I try really, really hard to not apply them to other people. But for those who thought we're going to get Wall Street out, we're going to get Goldman Sachs back, people who even thought we're going to make abortion illegal, when 48 hours later, soon to be President Trump says, I'm thinking right after the election, well, you may have to go to another state to get an abortion. It's like, okay, here we, here we go. You banked it all on your theoretical love for other people's unborn babies. So tell me what, what's the plan now when he has let you know that that supposedly that was that was your thing and now we see that it's a different deal. What are you gonna do? What is he gonna conserve for you? And when he doesn't conserve anything, when it's really just free market nihilism all the way, what are you gonna do? And so I, I do look upon many I have looked upon many um Republican career politicians with hope but when they won't um, call him out on you know the tweets whatever it is, I'm just I'm not sure who's conservative anymore because I don't know what anyone is interested in conserving on that end of things.
1: Yeah, I don't think that Trump the the bannon Miller Trump sort of campaign side, is not free market nihilism. The free market nihilism is more the Paul Ryan sort of, Mm -hmm. um, the elite Republican leaders. And so we'll, we'll see if there's some sort of a showdown there, but Trump, you know, is definitely fine with, uh, strong arming companies to keep jobs in one at a time. You know, you could argue he's doing that more for political theater than he is to actually keep jobs, but his brand of, Politics has been so successful that he, you know, some people say he's remaking the GOP in his own image. I recently listened to Mark Shields and David Brooks talk about the recent CPAC convention, which is the sort of the conservative wing of the Republican Party. And there was no mention of American exceptionalism. There was no mention from Trump and his people of sort of family values. It was all the Trump doctrine. It was all
0: He's the leader of the Republican Party now. Well,
1: yeah, but but even some him saying like, hey, you know, there's a huge turning point in history coming, and it is our rejection of the TPP deal, and TPP is like the hallmark of CPAC, and has been for, you know, that kind of you know free borderless trade uh, has basically been like the defining characteristic of economic conservatism for forty years and it's all gone within one cycle. Um that's an interesting maybe a conversation of its own of how could that happen? But I don't think it's true that I guess I'm just pushing back against it's going to be economic free market nihilism. I don't I don't think that's what Trump is pushing. I think he's pushing protectionism and nativism and isolationism.
0: Yeah. I I mean I this is very random, but I saw a, a tweet the other day where it was reported that one of um Trump's closest associates is saying you don't want Ryan care. Don't let them call it Trump care. Um now's actually the time to go for universal.
1: Yeah, as a Newsmax guy, I read that article. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be I mean, so for instance, here's a question for you. Let's say he And I'll
0: just throw in yeah. real quick. Al Gore um had a meeting. In Trump Tower, and he walked out of it saying that he was encouraged. And I've always wondered what on earth <laughs> encouraged him. That's just one tiny little tidbit, but you were going to ask me. Yeah, something.
1: I was going to say, I, I've been speaking with a couple of my friends about this. And, and you know, now we're getting into current affairs stuff, which I, I try not to do as much, but we'll wrap it around to our broader conversation. So let's say Ryan Care fails, which is the current American the A H C A or A C H A, whatever, the Paul Ryan bill. Let's say it fails, which it looks like it's either designed to fail or just surely will fail. And let's say Trump basically introduces some kind of uh, universal health care, single payer system, the left, the Bernie dream. All the while calling the media the enemy of the people, uh, and and everything else he's been doing, but he passes universal health care, what are you going to do? How will that change things for you?
0: Well, I i guess it's worth praying for. I think that he um, he wants to feel like a winner. And if somebody <laughs> was to show him, by backing this, your approval rating will go up. That might actually do it. And the idea that he has any allegiance um, to Paul Ryan, it's puzzling to me. I mean, who knows how these things work? But I thought, surely Mitt Romney has had a conversation with his former running mate, Paul Ryan, saying, look, here's, here's how it works. He will bring you in to humiliate you. His default mode is humiliation. Humiliation is his love language, we could say. If policy that is just arises out of maneuvering carefully the ego of an ungrown man who is incapable of uh, respecting anyone, that's cool. (laughs) I mean, I'm totally, totally great with that. I'm not – maybe this takes us back to the demonizing thing, the idea there is a prayer – Within Buddhism, may so-and-so be delivered from suffering in the root of suffering. May so-and-so know joy in the root of joy. I do pray that prayer for Donald Trump regularly um, so that I might go to sleep, so that I might be less anxious over him. I'm not speaking figuratively. Destroying the world over a perceived slight. Because I I could see that I. I think that the world is um, the world that turns on account of perceived slights. But if there's a way of making him feel good about himself that could lead to people wrong, having what they need to live, I vote for that.
1: You guys, I'm so grateful for everybody who has signed up for the Patreon campaign. Supporting this show financially Those donations start at three bucks a month And you get a bunch of stuff So there's bonus content that I've been giving to the patrons Uh, There will be uncut full-length interviews That include content that's not on this show For instance, I just interviewed David Bazan two days ago And there's a lot of leftover material there That is not going to be on the fully edited show That will just be for the patrons. I'm always trying to think of interesting bonus content to send out to the patrons, like conversations I've had with friends about relevant topics that might be shorter or not totally episode content, or interviews I've done with other podcasts or small groups. I was on a conservative radio show in Washington recently. That's gonna go out to patrons next month in April. Anyway, there's a bunch of stuff. So you can support the show, you can feel good about yourself, and you can get some bonus content. It's kind of a win-win. Head to patreon.com depolarize, or there's also a button that says become a patron at depolarizepodcast.com. Let's go dark for a second here. Okay. In your... Darkest moments, um, but let's say within reason. Yeah, what are you most concerned about with a Trump presidency?
0: Um, Hmm. Well, that that he would he he has declared war on the intelligence community. He has declared war on the media, which is the. To me, one of the most harmful abstractions of our time because media is just plural for mediums, and he is the media, and we are the media. He is a media projection creature in so many ways, um, but I'm um, war. Um, all the ways that he will take his own conflict. But all of the ways that he has already taken his own unresolved conflict and creating pain and suffering on a global scale for other people, be it um, North Korea, Iran, China, any of it. The phrase – the word jihad means struggle, and the saying within Islam is the true jihad is the inner jihad. And he is, like all of us, is involved in a jihad. But I think that he projects his fear and his anxiety more wildly and irresponsibly than any other public figure I can think of. This was the case before the election. It's the case now. So my deep fear is the deaths of millions of people as a result of his own Insecurity.
1: Do you worry about what he might do in the aftermath of some cataclysmic event, like a large terrorist attack or something like that?
0: Sure. Well, okay, to get it away from him a little bit, the 9-11 attack, I have fantasies about how it could have been an international police action. It could have gone very differently, our response to 9-11. Hmm. We had an opportunity as a country to accept the um, sense of neighborliness and kinship that was being offered us by, you know, countries, nations around the world. Very early on, the you are either with us or against us was spoken by the president of the United States. And very early on, our stated policy was to rid the world of evil. Which was just an insane, um, it's almost like a folk tale of one country deciding that it's possible to uh, to do that. I'll note that there was a moment during the um, 2004 election in which um, Matt Lauer asked President Bush, is it really possible to win a war on terror? To which President Bush said, well, you know, when you put it that way, it's not. There is no winning a war on terror. I mean, that's like winning a war on gravity or something. It was a great moment. But of course, there was an election going on. And um, then Senator Kerry seized on the moment and said, um, the president recently said that we can't win the war on terror. Let me tell you something. We're going to win the war on terror when I'm president. And, of course, after that, President Bush had to kick back and said, let me be clear on something. We will win the war on terror. So when that happened, I thought, weirdly, these are the two least free men in the United States. The nature of the job that one is trying to keep and the job that another one is trying to get means that they have to speak as fools to themselves and others. Perhaps privately you could get them to admit again, but the rhetoric, the language, yeah. I mean, (laughs) we say all kinds of things as if we are free of what our words evoke, but we're not. And so the situation we're in now isn't quite that different, but we're committed to a culture that pretends that it is the bastion of the possibility of human freedom in our world. And that's a uh, that's a tricky place to be.
1: Well, it sure sounds like Trump and Bannon are rejecting that principle, okay, whole cloth.
0: Okay. okay, I mean,
1: for instance, there's no more America is the shining city on the hill. America is securing global peace. They 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 say none there's of like that. End this American carnage. Yeah, America first. I mean, we take care of our own American ideals. Insofar as they exist, they stop at the border. And they are only for us. They're not for everybody else. And we will restrict the number of people who are able to come in and take advantage of those American values and benefits. So in a way, you might have gotten your wish. (laughs) I mean, we have those of us who always felt weird about that stuff have gotten our wish in that regard. Trump and Bannon and that crew are not foreign policy hawks. Uh, They would prefer to stay out of it.
0: Yes. Yes. Well, the idea so that that is gained, but the um, yeah, the white supremacist end of it, um, the idea that Dylan Roof was uh, radicalized on a steady diet of Breitbart, you know, there's there's that end of it that is um, not as uh, reassuring as the idea that America that people in leadership might be less inclined to think that America is the world's Messiah or police or something like sure. that.
1: Sure. Yeah. I guess I'm just trying to, I'm trying to massage a bit and yeah. and uh, show that, okay, on the one hand you maybe have, you're with us or against us. We're going to rid the world of evil, the sort of superhero language on the far other end, you've got Trump and Bannon saying, you know, we're going to be isolationist. These are not our problems. Uh, NATO is is not that important. Sometimes he says NATO's great. Sometimes he says demolish it. Sometimes he says one China policy. Sometimes he says, I'll I'll talk to Taiwan. Sometimes he says two-state solutions in Israel. Sometimes he says, I don't care, one state, whatever works. Sounds like he's just kind of riffing. And wouldn't
0: it be weird if he ended up being the person who who kind of, yeah, <laughs> peace process trump
1: <laughs> yeah so there is something in the middle though which is like okay maybe we aren't the policemen of the world but like the eurozone nato sort of world order has kept us from nuclear war it's it's kept basically global peace at least between western powers for 60 years and those are precisely the institutions that bannon wants gone and wants the U S out of. And so I guess I'm just trying to maybe update the categories a bit from those 2004, 2005.
0: Absolutely.
1: Cause, cause really it is kind of a different conversation now about foreign policy. <laughs> I don't know what we do with that, but, um, and I don't know how worried to be about that, but it's different now than it was then. So David, Politics and religion. These are the two things we are told never to talk about in polite company. Uh, they hit too close to home. They are too wrapped up in our identities. We are incapable of being rational about them. We're incapable of changing our minds about them. This is the folk wisdom. You wrote a book about religion called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. Uh in which my understanding is you have a kind of a broad definition of the word religion. So can you give us that definition and can you relate that to this common claim that politics and religion should be avoided?
0: Yes. I, well, I'll try and put them together. Um, well, I'll say that I define religion as one's controlling story, the leg and the word religion is binding, is tie, so how you are bound, how you get unbound, Um, social bonds. That's one way of defining religion. It's also maybe an okay way of defining politics, and there's a sense in which the book could just as easily be called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Political. The word that I use to um, kind of bring both together is the word witness. And your witness isn't what you say you believe or what you pretend to believe. Your witness is the whole of your life, everything that you're up to, the sum total of um, all of your commitments. And um, if someone wants to say, "Okay, I I think I get you, but I'm not religious or I'm not political, (laughs) I want to say, can I push you back on that? And if you were to say yes, I would say show me your receipts, your online history, a transcript of everything you've done and said in one day, your gas mileage, um, all of it. And together we will begin to get a feeling of what your religion is, what your worship is, what your witness is. Um, One move that I do on this that is contrary to the way the word religion is functions in, um, news cycles is I note that there is true religion and there's false religion. There is bad religion and good religion. Usually when people say religion in our day, they just mean the brainwash, the bad stuff. But I say that if we were to discover that a terrorist suspect had been seen in a mosque and then we say, aha, Religion was involved that that's like saying culture was involved or language played a role um, and we're very selective on this because we want to um call a suicide bombing religiously motivated, but we want to say a drone strike is just the demands of reason interesting yeah so i um and in that sense great great violence on millions of people, has been justified by suggesting that they are so backward in the religious sense that they can't be helped. They are beyond being converted to uh, a more reasonable way of viewing the world.
1: Are you familiar with like Sam Harris and Bill Maher's sort of ongoing critique of, of Islam as it is different from Christianity or, or whatever? Do you have, Could you uh, summarize sort of your take or your understanding of what their take is in your response to that?
0: I sure can. I think that their way of working the word religion is toxic and tragic and, um, just nightmarishly reductionistic in the same. And so what they have to do, do what do they mean when they say religion? They mean, um, (laughs) the crazy, Ideas that get hold of people and make them violent, hateful, bigoted, prejudiced.
1: Um, I would, I would maybe, I even think you could be a little more fair to them and say they assume a literal reading of a religion's text.
0: That's very, very helpful. And that
1: that is—it's either that or nothing. I mean, the, the Quran says, the Bible says, you know.
0: Oh yeah, thank you. That was exactly what I was about to say and by doing that the quran says the bible says harris and mar are doing the exact same thing they are becoming what they behold because they're insisting that anyone who reads the bible or the quran only reads it literally so if you bring up martin luther king as an exemplary figure they're going to want to call him a liberal or secular or a socialist. They're not willing to let religion be both. So for their project, for their book sales, for their ratings, they have to be as simplistic as possible with the word religion. And um, and it's really too bad. Um, and, of course, uh, maybe Bill Maher especially ends up stoking the very violence that he claims to decry Um, when it comes to Muslim people.
1: Yeah, and I I feel like there's a difference between the two of them. I I think Marr is more – he's a bit more of a salesman. He's more got his brand. I think Harris just like –
0: Yeah, but let's throw in that I really like Marr. I mean I loved after 9-11 when people would refer to the hijackers as cowards. Marr was one who said, "Uh, (laughs) you know, when you're willing – to kill and die for your cause. Coward probably isn't the, the word, right. and then he made it worse by saying, he said, now, um, dropping a missile on people with a laptop, hmm, what do we call that? kind of th- I mean, he was, and it was to- just as Christopher Hitchens described the 9-11 attacks as a faith-based initiative. In both instances, it's like, absolutely, that. that's exactly right, and both in the sense that this is somebody on the basis. But but of course, behind that is the idea that everything we're up to is a faith-based. Yeah, that's where you want to go sort.
1: with it, of course. I think Harris just, for whatever reason, Harris does not think that a non-literal sort of more nuanced religious view is, is religion anymore. For some reason, he just can't, he can't seem to get his head around that someone could believe biblical or Quranic stories are figurative and yet express some true thing about the world. And I'm not, you know, I don't think I'll get him on the show anytime soon, but anyway, we don't have to go down a Sam Harris rabbit hole. So if that's the caricature of religion you want to avoid, and by the way, let me, (laughs) let me just say that, uh, as an aside, I didn't want to go there right away because we were getting into something heavier, but your, uh, (laughs) your suggestion to people who'd say they're not religious or political of like, let me just pour through all your stuff and what you spent all your money on probably would not make people want to talk about religion or politics in polite company. Really what you seem to be getting at is that that saying, uh, yeah, you can't talk about these things in polite company because they are just too Central to who we are as people.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. They get at our core commitments and we maintain a temporary peace, a kind of peace, is it even peace, with friends and family by um, leaving it at the door. And it's a shame because there's all kinds of good conversation to be had. There is evolution that can occur when we listen to other people. But listening is such a rare happening among human beings. The threat of really listening um, remains this risky possibility that most of us avoid most of the time, while weirdly longing for it by going on Facebook and seeing what that friend said and weighing in. So paradoxically, we both fear it, but we want it. We want belonging. We want somebody who voted differently differently. To find us interesting and to say, "Ooh, you make a good point.
1: You know, you strike me as someone who's a pretty astute observer and interpreter of media and the way that we communicate. What about the run up to this election was Mm -hmm. different because of the kind of Facebook habits that we now have as Americans on either side of the aisle?
0: Yeah, I would like to think, hmm i would like to think that there was more i think the possibility of a common space a cafe a waffle house a starbucks any the possibility of a space in which people can love one another well in spite of differences that possibility is always there i think it i think facebook in so far as it fosters pseudo intimacy and um, escalates tensions, does not serve us. I mean, it's it's like it only makes things worse. Te- the technological, the speed, the haste with which we can weigh in without thinking it out often makes things worse. But I, I think at the same time, I, I don't think that I we noted earlier that perhaps um, Trump ran on and won by polarization. Um, If his Twitter account had been suspended a year ago, I don't know that we would have a Trump presidency. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, except the technology (laughs) in subsets helps us to be ourselves only more so, for better and worse.
1: Interesting. I think a lot of people would want to say that the way we interact on Facebook is really not our true selves. Like that's kind of the that's kind of the standard way to talk about it. Is
0: no, I think that's true. Yeah,
1: but you're saying in it paradoxically, it also is more ourselves because what some deep desire of ours is is getting met, or it's just getting scratched, or what?
0: Well, the desire. I mean, I will go personal on this, and I have my children, I have my family, and I have Twitter and Facebook, and I confess. That often the slower work of listening to one of my kids tell a story, which is a righteous work, it's the delight of my life, sometimes I am tempted to flee real relationship in the name of the quicker, hotter, more momentarily satisfying thing of the back and forth with uh, somebody I do at high school who I haven't seen in person in 20 years or something. I think a similar compulsion pulls our president to Twitter when he's supposed to be watching a uh, a seal raid in <laughs> Yemen or something. So may- maybe this is a good way of doing it. We prefer the quick, surfacey, emotional, again, pseudo intimacy is the word, you know, when we think of... Um, Donald Trump tweeting about um, Megyn Kelly at 2 a.m. after he felt like she got the best of him in a debate or an interview or something. We, perhaps each of us, have an inner Trump that would rather go there to that little hell space (laughs) or something than to be present to one another.
1: Yeah, I wonder if there's a sense in which uh, Trump as just Here's some editorial, but Trump as just the insane logical consequence of sort of this moment in social media and in American attention spans that if he is just like he personifies it so clearly and perhaps will eventually be shown to be such a failure at, at being a real human being. That it becomes a kind of a character lesson. I don't. I don't know that I feel confident that we'll learn it, but that's interesting.
0: The SNL that aired right after the election, yeah. Dave Chappelle said, "We finally elected an internet troll as president." And he and I want to say, and this is the pastoral part of me, that no one is just an internet troll. No one is just a serial killer or a child molester. Or, um, no one is, no one is only the worst thing they have done or are doing, but it is the case that the, um, yeah, that kind of white hot heat thing of doing what many of us feel we would do if we had his inherited wealth and power. I'll note that I, because I did think he was going to lose, I really did. I I hope this is true to say, I really did worry for him a little because I thought that after building it up that much, living on Twitter, living for that screen. I mean, even now, as he's being interviewed, he can't stop watching television. I worried that he would take his own life if he lost. Wow. I did. (laughs) I really thought that might be what would happen. And I don't know that we're out of the woods for that. Because as Howard Stern has noted, a friend of the president's, he said, you know, he loves Hollywood. And if Hollywood, if all of the people in all those movies that he loves, you know, other than Scott Bayo, as the jokes go, if all of them, if he feels like that they're against him, that's not going to be good for his health. That he's not really, I mean, even Bannon, I think, was rather late. In the campaign, this, is a, this yeah. is a weird one. Yeah, so in terms of long-term friends who are with him and love him thick and thin, I don't know that he has any. Yeah, I, I don't know. What, but the the celebrity principality, the thing that he does, ends up being a song and dance that gets narrower and narrower, even after he has gotten the ring of great power.
1: Man, it's hard for me to be depolarizing uh when I talk about Trump himself. I have no problem as hopefully is clear to our listeners by now. I have no problem being depolarizing about conservative and liberal general outlooks on life. Um with with Trump I I try not to say a whole lot because I I am just flummoxed. I'm also entertained, I'm also bewildered. I, I'm just like it is literally the greatest show on earth and maybe ever. Yeah. But will will thousands or millions of people die as a result of our being entertained? I don't know. And that's
0: Yeah, David Brooks David Brooks surprised me one time when he in one of his columns he talked about the relationship with Putin and he said, um, this was toward the beginning of the new year. He said something like, Yeah, will the thing with Putin fizzle? Will it lead to uh new, um, possibilities or will it lead to nuclear war? It's difficult to say, have a good new year. (laughs) And Brooks is considered, you know, kind of this intensely moderate person, but it's also, ah, David Brooks just made a joke about nuclear destruction. And he, he did. I mean, he was making a joke, but he was also entertaining the possibility that this is the way it's going to go. So how does anyone who thinks of themselves as conservative, like as in wanting to conserve something, proceed now when it's this guy, this man, with a picture of his father? I mean, according to a recent New York Times article, the only family photo he has in the Oval Office is his father. When he's been asked about heroes, he says, I'm not really into heroes, except my father. So here is one man who doesn't seem capable of respecting anyone other than the memory of his racist landlord father, who he is now. And I guess I want to throw in, of course, a racist landlord isn't just a racist landlord, but so he's just playing out the drama of the killers and losers, winners and losers. And like the rest of us, he's trying to feel good about himself when he gets out of bed in the morning. And it's, it's a difficult labor.
1: Oh man. That's a very poetic way to end, David. Although not necessarily <laughs> bright. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Yes, thank you.
1: Here's our final liturgy to to use okay. some of your language, David. Uh give us one argument or viewpoint from the left and from the right, one each that is misguided and and should be abandoned for something better and more fully human.
0: Yeah, okay. Oh, that's great. Um, I guess what I think of as on the right, if we were to bring up, um, abortion again, the idea that you're speaking to the caricature of the right, the idea that your theoretical love for a woman's unborn child is more sacred, is more – let me really think about this. The idea that your theoretical love for someone else's children um, is more real than their own tragic um, decision-making process is messed up. Does that make sense?
1: Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, From the left. I thought this one might be harder for you.
0: Okay, the left one is tougher. The idea that everyone who, and again, it's caricature, but the idea that your that someone else's um, belief in God and commitment to God um, has nothing to do with your seeking of justice is a messed up idea. Interesting. Does that work? Yeah, I
1: like that. That's good. If people want to find you, how do they do so? If they want to read your book, how do they do so?
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, there, I have a website. It's daviddark.org. And I am almost – I'll get this one up there, but I have all of the podcasts that I've been a part of. Slowly But Surely are available there. And then all of my books, I've written four. And my – I'll mention the one that came before the latest – um, the sacredness of questioning everything but the latest life's too short to pretend you're not religious i think is my best and is probably the best intro from what i'm up to and of course i've written a lot of things for mtv news and uh pitchfork and all of the stuff that i've written is also available and follow me on twitter David dark. david
1: dark on twitter all right man thank you so much for your time Man, that was a I, it was what I expected. I expected a somewhat rambly, poetic conversation with you where I had to push back and and move you toward the center sometimes or attempt to. Yes. And that is exactly what yeah. I got. As ordered. Thanks, man. This is great.
0: I'm so glad. Have a great morning. Yeah,
1: you too. Most of you do not know this. But there is one other way you can support this show. My day job is as a commercial composer. The track you've been hearing in the episode today is called Levitate. It's from a project called Big Waves which is a collaboration between myself and composer sound designer Wes Slover. And it is available for license for your podcast or if you work in creative industries for advertisements, corporate videos, independent films, etc. You can license it and any other track of mine at dancoke.net, K-O-C-H, or this one you can also license on marmosetmusic.com by searching for the band Big Waves. We'll see you next week with Aurelian crayutu who wrote an article for the Daily Beast called In Defense of Moderation and a book called Faces of Moderation. Man, that is an awesome conversation right up our alley everything else that usually applies applies follow me on twitter dan coke k-o-c-h join the conversation on facebook in the depolarized podcast discussion group check out previous shows and show notes at depolarizedpodcast.com see you next week